Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Uh, well, hello. My name is Troy Halson. I'm your host on the New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ken Robeson, uh, the historian at the Overholzer Historical Research Center in Fort Benton, Montana, and an active member of the Great Falls Cascade Sound County Historic Preservation Committee. Um, he's a retired Navy captain with a career in naval intelligence. Uh, the Montana Historical Society named Ken a Montana Heritage Keeper in 2010 and uh, to the Board of Trustees in 2021. Um, Ken is the author of numerous books and articles on Montana's past, but today we're discussing his new publication, Cold War Montana. Home to some of the most powerful nuclear uh, missile systems in the world, Montana played an indispensable role in the war against communism. Utilizing the Lindley's pipeline, Soviet spies ferried stolen nuclear and industrial secrets loaded in diplomatic pouches from Great Falls of the Soviet Union. Army nurse Lieutenant Diane Carlson served as an angel of mercy at the Pleiku in evacuation hospital in the Central Highlands of Vietnam. Young Montana smoke jumper Hog Daniels joined the CIA's secret war in Southeast Asia, becoming the principal advisor to General Vang Pao in his desperate fight against communists. Captain Ken Robinson, award-winning author and Cold Warrior, reveals uh, tales of Montanans who made their mark on this titanic struggle. And thanks, uh, uh, Ken, thanks for speaking with me today. I do appreciate it. Great to be with you, Troy. And it's it's super fun to talk about Cold War Montana. <laughs> Good. That's why I got you on here. Um, so we'll just kind of start from the beginning, as, as a lot of these um, interviews go on this channel. Um, so can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, really, how did you become a historian? Well, growing up on a farm in central Montana, my country school had one room and about uh, maybe 50 books in the library, very few history books. But I I just devoured every history book that in the library and across from then on, I, I was hooked. And I, uh, you know, I was a lot more interested in history than I was in farming, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I went on through Great Falls High School and the University of Montana and took a uh, history primarily at the uh, University of Montana. And this was the height of the Cold War. And, and I was, you know, really devouring current events and their historical background. And toward the end of my college days, I chose the Navy because they were the only service that would offer me a career in intelligence. Through my nearly 30 year Navy career, the historical background research and writing that we had to do, those were major elements. And as an intelligence officer, on occasion, we'd be briefing commanders and we'd hear, okay, that's great history. Now tell us what's going to happen. <laughs> so after my uh, naval days roaming around the world, I had control of my time and focus. And I returned to Montana and began research and writing Western history. And with this fast, fascinating history, I began to work as a historian at the research center in Fort Benton, although I got involved uh, much more broadly around Montana. I dug into Montana history, searching for the most neglected aspects. I didn't want to rewrite the War of the Copper Kings and the mm -hmm. things that are so uh, well covered in Montana history. So 
what were the neglected parts of Montana history? Well, black history stood out very clearly, and other ethnic history, women's history, and many aspects of military history, except Custer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those were uh, things that, uh, you know, I, I sort of chose to uh, specialize in. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I'm always curious about how people got into it. Um, you know, for all of us uh, folks who become historians, I imagine a lot of our stories are typically, there's a lot of common themes, let's put it that way. Um, so how about this project? So how did you come to this specific one? And, and the reason I ask that is because most of your books, if I'm not mistaken, really focus kind of on the 19th and maybe early 20th century. Um, but how did you end up uh, getting involved uh, with a project about the Cold War in Montana? Wow. Together with a whole lot of other Montanans in the military, I lived and breathed the Cold War from uh, 1960 to the end of the 80s. I was uh, serving the country and, and international communism had been the big threat, uh, pretty much all consuming to those of us in the military. So for three de decades since the fall of the Soviet Union, that life and death struggle that we lived through has kind of faded from memory. Very few books have been written about it and none have been written about Montanans uh, that participated in the Cold War, both at home in Montana and also abroad. So that's precisely the kind of neglected history that I uh, like to uh, delve into. And this being such a titanic struggle between our country and the Soviet Union and its war pact. So to make up for the absence of a book on Montana and the Cold War. This one tells, I think, the history of the Cold War, but it does it through the voices of Montanans and the stories that they uh, had both at home and overseas. Thank you. Yeah, um, and so that kind of brings me to, to the next question that, that I found interesting. I remember when you first uh, reached out to me, and I think it was actually probably the first time we actually met face to face. You know, you're you're telling me about you're working on this book, and in, in, in what I what I was thinking you were going to be you were going to create was kind of like you know here's the state of Montana, here are the borders, and then here's the Cold War happening inside the state. But what I liked is that you linked, you know, Montana to the Cold War and then the Cold War back to the state itself. And so I'm kind of curious that, like, how did you find the stories that made up this book? Well, I knew the international part of the Cold War. I'd, I'd been a participant in so many different parts uh, from the Western Pacific to the European theater. But I certainly had been gone for Montana for many, many years. And although I had kept close touch with the state and relatives that lived here and so on. Um, I, I, I guess I was on a quest to find what really happened. What were the interesting stories? What were Montanans doing at home? And, and also uh, Montanans that I didn't know about uh, overseas. So it became a huge research project some in conversations, uh, much of it in, in uh, exhaustive newspaper research. And I'd heard and read about so many of these, but my gosh, there were some great surprises, Cold War events and activities that you know, we'll, we'll talk about this afternoon, like the Grand Observer Corps and the astronaut, the connection between that uh, famed astronaut, Colonel Frank Borman in Montana. And in each case where I had a 
a major segment of the Cold War, like the space race and the and the whole uh, American space program, I was looking for not only the course of events so I could relate those in the history of the Cold War, but also which Montanans, what Montanans were participating and what were they doing? And some of them in the case of those like Colonel Frank Borman uh, became Montanans after their time in space and they became a long time Montanans. So anyway, uh, it, it was a, a great uh, kind of a quest of discovery I went on and I enjoyed that immensely. Thank you. Okay, so so let's actually just kind of jump into it. You know, when I had uh, I'd emailed you before with some uh, some topics, and so we just kind of start working through these. I mean, and to be fair, these are the topics that I I found most interesting, either because they were they were a bit novel or just something I, I was completely unaware of. And so you'd already mentioned at the Ground Observer Corps. Can you kind of can you tell listeners about Operation Skywatch and and really just what that program was? Uh, here in Montana, even though I'm, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it, it was a program kind of throughout the, the region. You know, you set the stage for, for a program like Operation Skywatch, that Grand Observer Corps, with two things. One is technology wasn't far enough along that the Air Force was able to field um, adequate uh, radar detection systems that would come online later. And, and we're talking here the early 1950s. So throughout the 50s, <clears throat> the substitute for those later, very um, sophisticated ra radar programs like distant early warning and SAGE and so on were, were people, Montanans, and they became observers. And of course, you also have to understand the other aspect of it. And that is that uh, Montana the role in World War II, and I set the stage for the book in that developing role in World War II, where where uh, centered at Great Falls, but also in uh, Glasgow, Cutbank, and Lewistown, Montana had uh, very important air bases. Uh, the the whole center, really, of the uh, Lend-Lease program, sending over eight thousand aircraft to the Soviet Union, was right here at Great Falls, Montana, at the two air bases that were that were begun during World War II. So, you know, you set the stage where Great Falls is strategically located. And after the war, when the uh, Soviet Union, unlike our sort of friendship and of, of urgency during World War II, they became very clearly uh, um, a, a promoter of uh, spreading international communism. They'd occupied Central and Eastern Europe. And very quickly, the U.S. recognized that, that the Soviet Union was becoming an adversary and the Cold War was underway. So Great Falls, Montana, and its strategic location near the northern border was very important in, as part of the air defense of the northern part of the United States because this was the era of no missiles in the early 1950s. It was an era of Soviet long-range bomber, bombers equipped with their new nuclear and thermonuclear weapons that uh, had, you know, were coming online. And, and so detection of bomber aircraft coming from the north primarily, but 
who knew which direction became a real challenge and they didn't have the radar system. So, so they created this ground observer corps and it grew by 1954 to some 11,000 Montanans. And, and these were spread all over the state. They were uh, in a, you know, school, schoolhouse in Browning, Montana, or they were in the classrooms in the, at the University of Montana, or they were in their ranch houses at Geraldine, Montana. So spread around the state of Montana, these ground observers signed up as volunteers. And when they'd hear or sight an aircraft, they'd pull out their recognition cards and do the best they could to uh, see if it, they could determine whether it was an American aircraft or a Soviet bomber coming over the horizon. And, and then they'd very quickly call the Fielder Centers at either Billings or, or Helena, Montana. And from there, in some cases, there'd be a, a scrambling of aircraft. If it was Western Montana, they'd probably come from Spokane. If they were the rest of Montana, they'd come out of Great Falls Air Base, which by the mid fifties became renamed Malmstrom Air Force Base. So this this was huge. And and it it was, you know, with with that large a segment and Montana's population in the mid fifties was maybe uh, six to 700,000. So 11,000 people was a sizable chunk of the, <laughs> of the population and, and an exercise of that whole Western air defense, the 29th air division was responsible at, at Great Falls and for Montana and also for Idaho uh, and Wyoming and, and part of Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. They're all part of that, detection system that uh, was centered right here at Great Falls, Montana. And so those operation plans um, uh, pressed forward to develop uh, the sophisticated uh, radar equipped warning stations. And by the end of the 60s, they were beginning on, or they were coming online. And so the Grand Observer Corps program was was uh, terminated, but uh, it, it certainly had, uh, had, you know, brought home to Montanans all through the state how important that uh, Soviet threat was and, and the whole uh, uh, Cold War uh, threat that, uh, that they were part of the defense against. So, You know, when I, whenever I get the opportunity to teach about the Cold War, so whether it's like an actual classroom or just, you know, my, my job on base, and I'll talk about this and that, you know, to the extent that, that all Americans, and heck, this is probably true of the Soviet Union, right, pulled in just kind of your everyday people to participate in this, you know, I think that this Operation Skywatch is a great example of, of that very process. Um, but but it kind of it makes me think of a segue to the next question. Um, so... <laughs> So I'm not even sure how to bring it up. Someone's going to ask it, right? So you write about big sky UFO sightings, you know, and, and that was something I remember when we spoke, I told you, I was like, whatever you do, you got to talk about UFOs in this book. And um, so can, can you actually do just that, right? So so why do you think, or maybe just kind of tell a story and let us, you know, get the get that conclusion on our own, how UFOs kind of became a quote unquote thing here in Montana during this time period? Well, I think it's a, a fair question. And I think also you have to go back to the time again, late 40s, uh, throughout the 50s. Uh, 
how important it was um, to in in that era to um, to detect, identify, and confront a threat. So if you had an unidentified aircraft uh, or an unidentified object that you couldn't identify as an aircraft, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. It was a potential air threat. And frankly, I think even to this day, we don't know for sure. Um, you know, there've been a, a lot of uh, very credible sightings over the years, a lot of very, un, you know, uh, very, uh, ridiculous sightings. Uh, it became a craze in the 50s and movies were being made about uh, the combination of space and UFOs and potential threats by aliens or maybe by the Soviets. So uh, it you, you really couldn't separate UFOs from that overall air threat. And you had to sort through a whole lot of uh, false alarms and even some, to this day, unanswered sightings that were very credible, very credible people, in some cases, some very credible film that they uh, were able to obtain and so on. So, um, you know, I think it was, uh, it was certainly magnified by the Soviet air threat to the country, but it was also part of a you know, we were beginning to think towards space. And by the end of the 50s, uh, the Soviets actually had sent up Sputnik, and that was a huge shock to the U.S. Uh, they were ahead of us at that point in the space race. So the, the whole story of the 1960s was space and, and catching up, sending a man to the moon and all of those uh, very important uh, national defense associated programs related to space. And they all kind of blur with those UFOs that had started as early as the late forties. Uh, first big one here was in 48 uh, uh, from a very astute observer and his secretary at the ballpark in Great Falls. They took uh, a movie camera film of it and sent it off the air force and after initially being discounted by the Air Force, uh, it it's, remains to this day as one of the most credible sightings. So, you know, it wasn't something that came late in the game. Uh, there were some, you know, seriously unexplained, unidentified flying objects from the late 40s on. Yeah, I, I've never cared about UFOs until I came up here and they were, you know, and pe people talk about them, you know, because there's several events and there's even a guy that used to be a missileer out at uh, Malmstrom and he's made a whole career out of it, uh, you know, kind of based on the sighting he had. I think it was in 67. I'm not entirely certain, but but no, that was definitely one I was. Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well about how, you know, the, the UFO sightings is kind of like this entanglement of all these different ideas and thoughts and threats real or perceived from that time period. So, so, so thanks for that. So let's, so let's stick with um, space a little bit here. So uh, can you talk about uh, Gene Marionetti and this Apollo 17 uh, tour? You know, that was the, the story of Gene Marinetti and, and the Montanans that participated in the space program was a new territory for me. Um, Gene Marinetti's uh, uh, a, a a, a boy that grew up uh, right across the river here uh, 
from uh, Great Falls in the town of Black Eagle. It was a big uh, uh, Anaconda Copper uh, uh, production company that employed lots of uh, ethnic families, uh, Central and Southern European families. And, you know, part of the interest in, uh, you know, part of the fascination, I think, uh, special fascination that so many Montanans had for the Cold War were because so many were the either immigrants or the sons and daughters of immigrants. And when we went into World War One, it was something like two out of three Montanans were either immigrants or sons or daughters of immigrants. And, and so, you know, so many of them being from Central and Eastern Europe, there, there was huge interest in, in uh, what was going on in Europe uh, during World War II and certainly after when the Soviets country by country pushed the Germans back and occupied those Central and East, Euro East European countries that so many of our residents were uh, descended from, uh, that was their homeland. And so, you know, there was a built-in huge interest. Well, Jean Marionetti was from an Italian family and uh, Jean got uh, going in public relations uh, it, really early in his uh, college career and moved almost transparently from, from uh, being in, in uh, classes and, and schools learning about public relations to being hired by uh, the very, very new NASA program. Um, and he was hired in the uh, public affairs branch and his talent very soon took him to the leadership of that uh, very important public affairs division. It's a little hard to understand today how important that was because um, go back to the 1960s and understand that for President Kennedy and Johnson and then Nixon to have national support and uh, international understanding of our space program was one of the highest uh, defense uh, quests. I mean, you 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 needed you needed support. You needed congressional support for the huge appropriations that it took to get a man to the moon and to get the space program going like it did in the 1960s. And to do that, what Marionetti so brilliantly did, he led the effort to get those astronauts out of their space suits and onto aircraft going around the country to public events and talking to local communities about how critical the space program was and all the new technology that was coming from it and and how important it was to stay, stay ahead of the Soviets. And so, you know, there were all these reasons that they were uh, using to build up support for that. And of course, uh, Apollo 17 was that last uh, moon explorer mission. And uh, because, because of Gene Marinetti's connection with Great Falls and Black Eagle in 1973, right as the, the manned uh, missions had ended to the moon, he was able to bring uh, Gene Cernan and the other two astronauts to Great Falls and also to Billings, Montana. And in the stop at Great Falls, of course, the astronauts were wined and dined at the country club and they gave great talks to the uh, community leaders. Well, the, the wives went home to 
Marionetti's mother's home and had a great Italian dinner and I'm sure a delightful conversation with Mrs. Marionetti. So, I mean, it made a great story, but it also showed in this case, a Montana that was playing a very key role in the space race and that uh, public relations role that uh, Marionetti headed was, uh, was something that was uh, just extremely important. And so that led me to uh, seek out other Montanans that were involved in the space race and uh, over time had, uh, had been uh, important in important positions. And I, I discovered uh, lots of things along the way. Jane Marionetti was the first and, and certainly I think uh, one of the great fun stories of that. You know, it kind of makes you wonder that, you know, would they have come to Great Falls otherwise, you know, if, if Gene Marionetti wasn't from Black Eagle, you know, if, if, if you're if you're the person running this thing, you know, you to get these folks up to uh, Great Falls, you know, that seemed like to be a natural fit. But matter, know, of fact, gonna... matter of fact, their tour was to go from Billings on, I think it was to, to Seattle uh, because of Gene. He, he managed to fit in an evening event in Great Falls. Mm. So you're absolutely right. <laughs> Great uh, Falls benefited both from, from its military uh, importance, but also mm -hmm. in this case, uh, the importance of Gene Marionetti. Mm -hmm. He was arranging the schedule and he built in a stop at Great Falls, Montana. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's keep pushing forward a little bit here. So um, as I was reading your book, uh, I don't know why that I, I was surprised by this, especially just kind of knowing what I know about Missoula, Montana today. Um, but can you talk about uh, some of the anti-war activism around Vietnam that took place at the University of Montana here in the late 60s? Wow. You know, those of us that served in Vietnam and served in that era, um, the, the, you know, the protests uh, centered primarily on college campuses, but certainly not limited to that. There were big demonstrations in the streets of the District of Columbia or outside the uh, Pentagon. So uh, it, it became by, after the Tet Offensive, I mean, the, the, the anti-war movement really began seriously by the end of, the, of 1965, but it, it grew slowly and it was mainly uh, campus-based until Tet in early 1968, that terrible year of 1968, began with the Pueblo being seized and then the Tet Offensive. And the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong planned the Tet Offensive to demonstrate to the people of the world, but especially to the people of, Mon of uh, the United States, that um, that the U.S. was not winning the war in Vietnam, that the cities in Vietnam could all be uh, attacked. They could all have uprisings of substantial uh, events, and some of them way and some of the other Vietnamese cities were taken over by the, by the communist forces. And so, you know, Tet was such a shock to the country, and so many newsmen and women and reporters had in sort of begun to swing about with questions of the war but after Tet it was almost a stampede to anti-war 
activity and anti-war sentiment, and it began to affect the military. Uh, they they found, you know, sadly, even within their ranks, uh, um, military people are American citizens. They're they're affected by uh, what goes on in the newspapers and in their homes at home and in their colleges that they came from and so on. And so it it began to be a serious problem. And and in campuses like the University of Montana, and there are, of course, other colleges in Montana, but much, most, much of the activity was centered in Missoula and at the University of Montana. Um, and, and it began to grow from really 1968 until uh, it crested, I think, in 1969 and 70. Uh, by then, Nixon's Vietnamization program was underway, and the numbers of troops were being reduced, and more of the fighting was being, you know, turned over to the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese forces, and the casualties after 1968 were dropping substantially, fortunately. But so, so for the couple of years centered on 68, 69, those college campuses uh, in some cases had some really devastating violent protests where they literally tore buildings and, and parts of the campus apart and, and blessed the anti-war protesters in, in Montana and at the University of Montana that even though they had substantial demonstrations and they kept up a, a loud uh, lobby against the war. They never went to the extreme of attacking uh, buildings and, you know, burning the, the uh, uh, ROTC building and things like that that happened in other campuses. Matter of fact, uh, right in the midst of all that, there was a vote taken. I, I think it was pretty brave of the administration to conduct the vote, but it was a vote over whether ROTC, ROTC should be continued. And it was a vote for the students as well as the faculty. And in both cases, by a two to one margin, um, both faculty and students voted to retain ROTC on the campus. So, you know, that's a symptom that it was never uh, even a majority on campus that had turned uh, strongly against the war, but it certainly was a time of great unrest and a time of, of great tension and nervousness. Uh, I think the uh, president of the time handled it extremely well because he he'd talked to the demonstrations in reasonable terms. And the thing he always emphasized was how proud he was of them for not tearing the campus apart and for remaining peaceful and letting their voices be heard, but not by a violent uh, nature. So, you know, the other parts of Montana were to, to some extent participating. The, the, uh, the other major college in Montana, of course, is in Bozeman. The, then it was uh, largely an agricultural college, although today it's huge engineering and science and, and uh, agriculture. Uh, and, and throughout Vietnam, uh, there, were, there were minor 
protests, but in many cases, there were about as many pro-war or pro-military demonstrators as there were anti. So mm -hmm. it was much more balanced and uh, didn't rise anywhere near the level it did in Missoula. Um, on the smaller campuses spread around the other towns, uh, again, it, uh, it varied. Uh, some were a little more active than others, but, but it was Missoula where the heart of it was and a lot of concern uh, throughout the several year period uh, until, until we seriously began withdrawing from Vietnam uh, that it would get explosive and, and out of control. But fortunately, it, it really never did. So uh, very responsible anti-war activism in Montana, unlike uh, in many other parts of the country. Well, sticking with, uh, with with Vietnam a little bit here, um, you know, one when I when I heard you give a talk, um, I don't know when it was at the History Museum a few weeks back, and I was really uh, interested in your story about Colonel uh, Fred Sherry. Uh, do you mind uh, telling our listeners a little bit about him and his experience uh, in Vietnam? My gosh, you know, again, I, I was I was digging deeply through all the sources I could locate to understand. The Montanans that had participated, what was happening in Montana, and so on, and that's why I could, you know, I feel comfortable about talking in detail about things like the anti-war movement. I understand it now because I've dug into it, and and yet I didn't know it that well when I started the research for the book. And I'll tell you, one of the great surprises I had was discovering that the senior African-American prisoner of war held by the North Vietnamese was a Montanan in many ways. He had, he had been raised in Virginia, in, just in Eastern Virginia toward the Tidewater. And he'd grown up with this, uh, you know, his, his father was a sharecropper. They had, you know, uh, segregated schools, uh, all the things you hear about today, uh, the Cherry family was going through. And yet Fred Cherry, from, from the day he could stand outside and watch a Navy or an Air Force aircraft, and both of them were flying pretty actively in the area he mm -hmm. was living in and do some aerial maneuvers, he was going to be a pilot. He was dead set. It didn't make any difference where, whether people would tell him, well, you're black and there's no way you're going to be able to do, achieve things like that. So when he got finished with his, his uh, segregated college and had, had graduated, he uh, challenged the Navy recruiter to let him enlist and go to flight school and the Navy wouldn't accept him. And this was about uh, 1949. Um, so he did the same thing with the Air Force and uh, the Air Force uh, recruiter w tried to discourage him and finally, uh, I think said to himself, well, this guy can't possibly pass the test, so I'll let him take it. And so Fred with a bunch of others took the test and uh, Fred Cherry scored the highest of those taking the test. And he was off and on his way to getting through uh, both commissioning as a, as a lieutenant and also through flight school to become a pilot. And this, he was one of the first of, in the integrated Air Force of the black pilots. So 
off to Korea he went and he he had a, a sterling record flying F-84s in, in Korea. Uh, came to uh, Great Falls, Montana, the Great Falls Air Base, uh, when it was still called that uh, in the early 50s. And uh, midway through his tour here, it was renamed Malmstrom Air Force Base for, for the hero that uh, namesake that uh, Einar Malmstrom that uh, it was named after. Cherry was so capable and such a good pilot that when the uh, uh, wing commander would would be off uh, to a, a meeting and flying his own plane, he always took a you know wingman with him, and uh, he always chose Fred Cherry to fly side by side with with his aircraft, and that that from I think from that point on gave you a hint of of how skillful he was. Also, while he was here in Great Falls for the uh, more than three-year assignment, he married a Great Falls woman. I think uh, she was a young Black woman uh, from a large Black family that uh, had uh, ancestors as Buffalo soldiers. So I think she'd heard a lot about military life, and she was certainly looking for a ticket out of Great Falls. <laughs> and, uh, and here was this dashing, handsome, young uh, Captain Fred cherry at this point and so off to uh, korea a few years later and he started flying uh out of the thai bases with with the other air force uh personnel and he was uh he was one of the flight leaders uh he, he was uh greatly respected and by february of 1965, the Viet Cong attacks on an American compound in the highlands and and so on had opened a major bombing campaign, the first of the Rolling Thunder campaigns in North Vietnam. And so Fred Perry and, and his Air Force crews, as well as the Navy crews flying out of the Gulf of Tonkins, uh, Gulf of Tonkin off of uh, aircraft carriers, uh, pursued this Rolling Thunder campaign in October of 65 while he was leading his squadron on a low altitude attack on a radar site in North Vietnam. His, his uh, F-105 was hit by AAA fire and the aircraft exploded and he ejected um, at uh, only 400 feet. So he barely got out of the aircraft, barely yes. got his chute open his left ankle and left wrist were broken along with his left shoulder being crushed. And so there he was a captive of the first black uh, American uh, held by the North Vietnamese. And they, they tried to help. They wanted to keep him alive. They, they worked really hard over the years to get him to to make uh, propaganda statements about the racial situation in the U.S., and he absolutely never did. He, he through all sorts of torture in those early years, uh, he withstood that. They also tried the the ploy of putting a, a young Navy ensign, a white Southerner, in his dark, dirty cell as his roommate and thinking that, boy, this will stir up racial t tension between the, the, the black and the white. And uh, they were together for eight months and 
Cherry was near death so much of that time, and he only lived because Porter Halliburton, the young Navy ensign from the South, kept him alive. He bathed him, he fed him, he changed his dressings. And at the same time, Porter Halliburton was, you know, a young guy held by the North Vietnamese being tortured, and he was very, very depressed. And he always attributed his ability to overcome his depression to his mission to keep Porter Halle, to keep Fred Cherry alive. So the two of them bonded and for the rest of their lives after they were freed and came back during Operation Homecoming, um, the two of them made many speeches around the country. Uh, they, they both had major input to a wonderful book called uh, Two Souls Indivisible about uh, their experience as black and white uh, living through uh, a, a very tough uh, captive situation and bonding. So, I mean, it, it's just one of those tremendously compelling stories uh, about the heroics of so many of the POWs. And of course, that was a close uh, subject to my heart because I had uh, been selected to uh, to join Operation Homecoming, which was the uh, operation at Clark Air Force Base where the North Vietnamese held captives were flown out of Hanoi into Clark Air Force Base. And I was meeting the senior Navy prisoner of war um, and spent uh, several months with him uh, and th this was James Bond, Bond Stockdale. Uh, most people remember him only because he he ran for vice president very reluctantly with Ross Perot in the 1972 election. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he did that because the POWs felt they owed so much to Ross Perot. And initially, when Perot announced that he was going to run for president, he asked uh Stockdale, if, if he would be the nominal um, vice presidential uh, running mate until he could, until he, Perot, could get a big name politician to run with him. Well, no big name Republican or Democrat politician would run with independent Ross Perot in that election. And the time went on and it became clear that uh, there was not going to be a substitute that it was really going to be uh, Jim Stockdale. So anyway, that was the, the honor of a lifetime on my part, but it also uh, was, was just symptomatic of the, of the bravery of, and uh, how important that uh, POW story was to bring back to the American people. Well, thank you. Yeah. So um, actually I'm going to, I'm going I'm to leap over the last kind of little topic I, I had written down and because you, you'd said something that got me thinking. So you're talking about um, experience with Stockdale, but what I've noticed throughout the book is that you inserted yourself, um, you know, a little text here and there. Right. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain um, why you did that and what you think it added to the book itself. You know, I'll leave it to the reader to, to judge whether it was successful and whether it added, but mm -hmm. I had a big debate with myself about whether to, to do that or not. But I felt that as a Montanan who had spent almost 30 of the 50 Cold War years in the Navy in so many different 
parts of the Cold War uh, that I, you know, when I, when I felt what I had experienced and what I had to say would add to the story and the completeness of the overall Cold War history that I wanted to present, I talked myself into doing it. And as I say, I'll leave it to the reader to, <laughs> you know, to, to judge. And I did limit it uh, uh, to only occasional and only, uh, in most cases, fairly spare words, although uh, Vietnam uh, brought a few more words out of me. <laughs> There, there were just some cases there where I, you know, because the Vietnam War and the other proxy war, the Korean War, were so big, and I, and yet I, I felt I had to do justice to both of them within the context of being proxy wars in the Cold War book, and yet I couldn't spend a, a lot of, you know, I couldn't spend hundreds of pages covering, beginning to cover Vietnam. But what I did was try to give a feeling for um, the experience for Montanans. And I selected a number of different Montana stories, including my own to, mm -hmm. to talk about. And uh, as I say, I'll, I'll let the readers <laughs> uh, judge whether they like the uh, inserts. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, uh, it, it, uh, it, I think, uh, added to the story. And that's why I did it. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So um, you, you've already, I think you've already kind of uh, touched on it a whole bunch, but kind of one of the, one of the last, next last questions I'd like to ask here is what, what, what is this book or how to put it here? How can this book help readers better understand Montana's past? And I think you already kind of touched on it at the beginning, but if you would mind kind of hammering that point home here towards the end. Absolutely. You know, Cold War Montana, it's the history. It's the story of the Cold War and the Impact, the profound impact that the Cold War had on Montana, had it on other states as well, but I wasn't writing about other mm -hmm. states. I wasn't writing about the military or the civilians from other states. And, and the broad range of ways that Montanans participated at home and abroad. So I presented my book for really for every Montanan. I think for veterans, who have their own Cold War stories and certainly have their own experiences in Air Force, Navy, Marines, and so on. Um, I, I hope it'll trigger a flood of their mm. memories and and at you know bring out their own stories. I try to at my talks. Uh, there's so much to cover, but I I try to leave a little time to at least in conversations afterward to to hear from veterans and what they experienced. But I think also for Montanans on the home front, they have their stories, whether it's associated with civil defense, sound of air raid silence, getting under a desk when you were in school because a <laughs> nuclear attack was about to occur, which is absolutely hilarious today, but it was mm -hmm. dead serious back in yeah. the 50s. The Ground Observer Corps, sighting UFOs, hearing the rhetoric on both sides. Mm -hmm. The local anti-communists ranging from, you know, Joe McCarthy, who didn't play all that well in Montana. He was big in, in some other states, but not necessarily in Montana. 
and, and so on. But most of all, I wrote this book, Cold War Montana, for young Montanans who, who either think the Cold War is ancient history or they haven't even heard of it or they don't know anything about it. So I want them to understand the kinds of dangers that this Titanic struggle brought and know how the world avoided you know, we really won the Cold War in two ways. One is it always remained a Cold War, even yeah. though we had those proxy wars, we were not directly fighting mm -hmm. a nuclear war with the Soviets. So it, that was a huge victory for the world. The other was we won. The Soviet Union dissolved. They mm -hmm. banned the Communist Party. They withdrew forces from the Eastern European countries and Eastern and Central European and also the constituent republics of the Soviet Union itself are today either democratic or, or some version, not some not so democratic, but they're, they're independent. And the big danger today is that a resurgent Russian empire mm -hmm. led by Putin may bring a resurgence of occupation of some of those countries like the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other possibility that I want the young people, as well as everybody to understand the, our Cold War with the Soviet Union. You know, we may, within the next decade, and it may be a lot sooner than that, be in a new Cold War with Communist China. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, Communist China is a lot potentially stronger adversary than the Soviet Union was equally equipped with nuclear weapons. So we have that great concern, mm -hmm. but also they go into it with a, a potentially a lot stronger economic base going into it. We always had the Soviet centralized economy that was, that was going to limit how effective Soviet economic growth could be. And it wasn't by the time the Soviet Union fell their economy had been stagnant for 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. Their country was corrupt and increasingly corrupt. And, and they had, you know, these were the problems that the Premier Gorbachev recognized, the first college-educated Soviet leader to come to power. And he recognized how important it was to solve the problems I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So anyway, those are all, I think, elements of why I wrote the book, and I hope uh, people will uh, share the interest in it. Well, good, thank you. Um, so last question here. So what is next uh, for you on the, I guess, the research uh, agenda? Well, I always, <laughs> Troy, I always have more ideas on how to fill the voids in neglected <laughs> history than I have time to do it. Mm -hmm. I'll be visiting, of course, in the coming months and even into next year with uh, Cold War Montana, mm -hmm. uh, taking it around the state. Uh, I'll be going to Billings and I've been to around Great Falls and Fort Benton. I'm going to Helena. Western Montana is still uh, very affected by COVID, so they're not having uh, live mm -hmm. events through a portion of Montana. So it's going to extend into next year. Mm -hmm. And I'll also be working with a whole lot of people at the research center in Fort Benton. And that that's the range of historical research. I get challenged with everything from the fur and bison robe trade of, and the native American 
uh, interaction and cultures uh, when Montana was first becoming formed, as well as the territorial years of Montana and on into the homestead and ranching. All of those things are important at the mm -hmm. Research Center in Fort Benton. So I, I dig deeply with my visitors and my queries into all that. And then I, as a newly appointed trustee for the Montana Historical Society, I'm uh, working hard with them on bringing that new Montana Heritage Center into mm -hmm. reality to share the best of Montana history, including the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So my next book, though, will likely turn back to the early days of territorial Montana. And uh, I'm looking forward to, I always look forward to new books. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear about, you know, about the, um, the, the new Heritage Center whenever it, uh, it is finally, you know, constructed and, and, and up and running. I've actually been speaking with a, their head curator, and I am com I'm spacing on her name right now, but about yep. trying to acquire some old Minuteman three components uh, yep. whenever that weapon system comes offline. That, that's, we're talking a decade down the road, but be very curious as to how they uh, work, try to work the Cold War era into whatever interpretive displays and stuff they end up uh, creating there. That's one of the problems they've had with uh, with military doing justice to the military mm -hmm. as recent as the Cold War, and that is having artifacts and things to display over at the Heritage Center. So uh, it's going to be important to mm -hmm. uh, to come up with ways other mm -hmm. than photos. I mean, photos yeah. can always be good, but it's also great to have a piece of the Berlin Wall or to have mm -hmm. a, a piece of a you know, something related. Uh, that's one reason why the Malmstrom Museum in Great Falls is so exciting to visit because you can, you can't sit at it, but you can stand right next to mm -hmm. one of the control consoles yeah. that was used uh, with the Minuteman 2 and so on. So, yeah. Well, cool. Well, all right. Well, Ken, well, we'll, we'll call it uh, quits there. I just want to say this is a fascinating discussion. Thank you for your time. I do appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Troy. It's always great to talk about books in general with with listeners but this one uh, cold war montana's kind of a special one for me so excellent all right. all right take care people bye-bye